Hot take. I'd say a lot of the crazy these days coming out of Silicon Valley and into pop culture are driven by a few problems, two of which my guest and I are going to talk about today. First, welcome to this week's episode of Make Sense. It's a video podcast that simplifies complex issues at the intersection of tech and people, and there are a lot of them. So whether you're totally hyped on artificial intelligence and ready for the robot takeover, or you want to crawl into a cave after deleting all of your social media accounts, I'm here with my guests to help make sense of what's going on so you can design yourself into the future. Who am I? My name is Lindsay Tabus. I'm a product market fit strategist and innovation advisor. I've always been obsessed with designing technology for people, and I'm so excited to introduce my guest with me this week is Sean Boyce. He's a serial entrepreneur and owner of Next Step Consulting, where he helps teams solve product challenges so they can scale. He's also the host of Product Launch, where he features people that have succeeded in building product businesses. I was flattered to be a guest last year. I uh, cannot wait for this conversation. Sean, how are you? I'm doing very well. And thank you for having me, Lindsay. That's a wonderful intro. You do a much better job than I usually do. <laughs> well, thank you. Flattery always goes a long <laughs> way. Uh, Sean, you're an incredibly busy guy. You run multiple businesses. Um, but the last we spoke, you had a ton on your mind about the future of engineering and the engineering discipline. You yourself have been an engineer and a product guy for 20 years. So what's swirling around up there? Great question. I'm super excited to talk about this topic. And I think the first thing I'll say is my background is heavily in engineering. So I've got a lot of respect for the role. I've done it for a very long time. It's just kind of who I am personality-wise. Since then, a lot of my focus has been in product, but I think we've seen some really interesting stuff developing like very recently, like chat GPT and a lot of AI uh, elements that I think are going to push that, that position forward into the future. And I've been thinking more about what that's going to mean. And one interesting way that I've done that has been through some research and things that I've been reading. And a lot of the people that I speak with in my network in terms of how they're leveraging these tools, you know, market research uh, at its, at its core is what I really love to perform as much as I can in order to get a better understanding. And not just where we are, but where we're going. And what I've been hearing is all the time saved that people that are working on any kind of technical builds or SaaS products have been getting from leveraging these tools in terms of helping them with building and extending what their products are capable of. So they've been using tools like ChatGPT to like write subroutines, for example, and eliminate what was like low level coding tasks that they were doing themselves before, which mm -hmm. would you know be a bottleneck in the process sometimes and would slow them down terms of what it was they were trying to develop. And now what they're telling me is how much time they're saving by leveraging these tools instead of having to write that stuff themselves. So I think that's a really interesting angle to it. And uh, even more recently, I've seen OpenAI talking a little bit about what they're thinking in terms of how ChatGPT is expected to help in this area by trying to kind of eliminate as much of those like low level engineering tasks that essentially probably don't need to be done by a person any longer once the tool is ready for it yeah. so that we can move that much faster when we're building. So let's take a step back and two things. Well, one really quickly, chat GPT, artificial intelligence, chat interface helps you access the internet. For instance, I wrote a recommendation for a former intern of mine. Maybe I usually would go to Google and look for a template, but I opened up 
chat GPT and said, can you give me a template for recommending someone to graduate school? And it just spit out a template and I could use that. Uh, and then what I knew about my intern to write, write the letter. Right. So uh, it's a different way of interacting. Maybe these software developers would go to Stack Overflow uh, or some other resource to find the, the, the code they needed or the, the steps they needed to do to do the project setup. But they can they can do it in ChatGPT. Is that it's oversimplified. Right. But it's a mm -hmm. good, good description. It, it, it's a. Yeah, it's a different interface for getting information, and it seems mm -hmm. to be one that feels much more natural to a lot of people. Uh, but I wanted to take Great. a step back and just talk about kind of the time intensity of software engineering, that mm -hmm. just, you know, engineering in general, writing custom code can take a really long time, and we can't really just add new people to a software engineering team in order to realize more benefits. Actually, often when you add a new person to a software engineering team, you see the productivity of that team go down for at least a few weeks or sprints before it, it might go back up. And I think what I heard from another podcast is that Jeff Bezos is famous for saying that a, a, team, a software engineering team, seven to eight members max, right? So there's been kind of a ceiling on the productivity of any one engineering team for, for quite a long time. So we keep thinking about how we can uh, speed the process up. And, and maybe that means having more out-of-the-box toolkits or potentially offloading some of the more routine and non-custom uh, uh, code, you know, and functionality to low code platforms uh, mm -hmm. so that uh, we actually just don't need as many engineering resources as we would need in the past. Uh, all right. So besides chat GPT, where else are product and engineering teams finding ex accelerators for themselves? Yeah, and I think you bring up a, a number of good points there. I think the reason why we're seeing some of these tools uh, be developed more frequently and faster these days is because that's commonly been essentially where the bottleneck has been. When we're ready to build, like you said, you know, there's limitations in terms of improving the productivity of what those teams are capable of unless we leverage some of these tools and resources to try to do so. So I think what we've seen, you know, very recently with ChatGPT in terms of being able to actually take on some of the coding themselves, which is really interesting. I think we'll probably see the team start to change shape because of it as well, too, as they're figuring out how to leverage more of both those AI tools and some of these no code or low code platforms as well. Because at the end of the day, right, if the solution is adequate from a technical perspective, customer probably is maybe relatively indifferent. They're getting the value that they need, right, in terms of how it's built or what's happening behind the scenes. That's usually not a top of mind of most concern for them. So combination of both of those. And then I think we'll start to see these product teams start to take shape slightly differently as well, too, where instead of all engineers, it might be less engineers, but leveraging these tools. And then I think what I'm hopeful for, uh, given a lot of the product work that I do, and I know you as well, is for us to be able to focus then in an area of more discovery and research. Because mm -hmm. I think one of the things that ultimately slows down progress now or how the bottleneck might move 
and one of the areas where we can ultimately deliver the biggest impact, at least in terms of what these teams are doing, is doing that discovery, doing that research to figure out, you know, what to build and why that's important. Well, often that work gets discarded altogether <laughs> right. because of how long engineering takes, which True. which on both ends creates problems, right? You know, we're, we're spending Definitely. a bunch of money and a bunch of time building stuff that we're not sure customers actually want, but we don't have the time to figure out what customers want because... Um, engineering just takes so long to deliver. What is there an example out there that the average person that's not in tech can perceive a problem caused by the the slowness of software engineering? I the 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 one I, or two that I came up with is you know when when health what is it healthcare.gov mm-hmm. launched and it was a pretty big debacle. Um, and it takes time for it to get fixed because, you know, they can only move so fast. I'm, I'm thinking also during, you know, at, at when, when the pandemic hit and the PPP loans were, you know, passed and approved, but it mm-hmm. took quite a while for all of the banks to build the software infrastructure yep. to, to handle the submissions uh, and the requests. Is there, are there any other more, I don't know, other examples of where, you know, a, the common person could perceive software engineering resources mm-hmm. and productivity being a problem? Yeah, so many. We could talk about that alone probably for the rest of the episode. <laughs> we don't <laughs> want to bore anyone. Yeah, <laughs> try to make it as interesting as possible. The thing that strikes me as fascinating is from a usability perspective, how many products just aren't there, uh, despite you know us being in 2023. And all of these things haven't been around for decades at this point, the strategies in terms of figuring out how to make it better. I think you raised a really good point in that because building can be such a bottleneck, a lot of these really critical, important steps either get like reduced dramatically or skipped altogether. One that I now have heard of recently in our city, Philadelphia, is the uh, key or the card that is used for leveraging our public transportation for the SEPTA system. For the longest time, I was waiting for even a system that like New York had, for example, where you could just use a refillable card, for example, and go through the turnstiles and you know, do whatever you need to do public transportation wise. And they had one that you could pay a day pass and just use that as much as you want. And then many years later, uh, the SEPTA system in Philly had ultimately developed a card, but that card wasn't able to be linked to a bank. So I needed to specifically refill the card at a kiosk. I needed to keep track of how much was on that card. And I couldn't do that unless I was at a kiosk, all of these things. And here we are, and we finally have something developed there many years later than even like a very close neighboring city has, but we haven't, we can't even support tap right now. Like mm-hmm. in New York, you can just, you don't even have to use a card anymore because most right, right. cards support tap. So you can just tap your credit card and go like, what is even the need for a card at this yeah. point? Uh, if I go over to Europe, it gets even more ridiculous where you can just plug everything into your phone. You don't even have to do any kind of transactions, but you just, press a button when you hop on transportation in Switzerland, and then Mm -hmm. you press a button when you hop off and it just charges you based on whatever you took and wherever you went, right? So like all of these things are possible, but they're all at different levels, depending on where you are or what you're doing. And the bottleneck, like you said, is is typically engineering. 
Yeah. Theoretically, in our world, we talk about lean or agile development, which means, you know, move fast, break stuff, learn and fix it. But in practice, because engineering is a bottleneck, and that's how we get to the point, as Sean said, and you said earlier that, you know, we have a lot of products out there that are just not up to snuff because of um, the lack of resources, you know, and the ability to rapidly iterate. Hmm. I think about Capital One, for instance. Now, I was with ING Direct and it got acquired by Capital One. And to this day, if you log into Capital One checking account and you had ING Direct, the pay bill interface is the exact same interface from ING Direct. It is literally being served up in like an iframe kind of servlet within the Capital One infrastructure. And it has its pros and cons because I've been using it for so long. I know how it works, right? <laughs> uh, I don't have to like learn a new system. But at the same time, this is an interface that has been around for 15 years. So um, it, our ability it, it, to match what our theory is of rapidly iterating and rapidly learning is actually severely hampered. And that's why no-code tools and the possible restructuring of a product team, like you suggested, is exciting because Definitely. you might have now, you used to like look for product team members that could cover multiple bases, a, a UX designer that could also do visual or a visual designer that could also do front end, a product manager that could do some UX research type stuff. Like you're looking for a combination of pieces. And so now maybe what we wanted, used to want to see from a, a visual design and front end developer to rapidly prototype together we now will be looking for visual designers that also are certified with Bubble, right? Yep. Or um, one example, you know, Figma is the, the design tool that everyone is using these days. There's now our apps in the marketplace um, that either will create the front end design off your Figma or even go as so far as to build the actual product. Uh, wow, right. And the like, right? So that you don't even need Bubble anymore because a UX designer can build the designs and then connect this app and have a, a product, which speeds up the user testing and, and learning. Mm -hmm. um, so, can we use it for real stuff or is it just for prototyping? Yeah, it's a great question. I think we're getting closer to ultimately having these tools be able to build something scalable. Because right? we could do so, you know, horizontally or vertically, we can always throw more resources at it. What I always encourage people to do is like, get the product built as quickly as you can and keep it as simple as possible. Because people have a tendency to go, you know, every which way with features thinking they need everything, including the spinning rims in order to actually test something. You really don't. Uh, if anything, I think it actually ends up working to your favor. If you keep the product simpler, if you keep the product simpler to solve a more specific problem, that makes a lot easier for you as well, too, when you start talking about scaling. So mm -hmm. I've seen instances where no code tools and, you know, even simple applications have been scaled. Now, they might not do so particularly efficiently in terms of they may chew up more resources than if you had refactored everything into uh, proper programming or coding language to be able to, like, make maximum efficiency of your resources. But again, in the beginning, 
does your customer care? Probably not. Yeah. It's really about their experience, right? So once you can, I, I want to remove all the bottlenecks to the process of being able to like get your product out there and test the value proposition, get that right. social proof, like figure out if they're using it, figure out if they're getting value out of it, calculate the ROI. Once you've, once you've lined all of that stuff up, then go nuts. Like if you want to refactor the application, right. feel free, but like not before that, you know what I mean? Exactly. Right. Right. But when you have actual users using it and people asking for more features and people willing to give you money, then let's go for the custom built app. But totally. uh, apps like Bubble, apps like Glide or have you do you have experience with Glide? Yeah, I've used that as well. It's it's one of my favorite tools now. I have an app that's basically like Lindsay in your pocket. It has all of my resources from labs I created you know, a spreadsheet and inventoried all of them. And uh, clients can search by marketing resources or they can search by chapters and lessons, uh, stage of the startup. But all I had to do is create a Google spreadsheet. And now there's an app, you know, on the phone that people, people can use. Um, so there's definitely a lot of different applications for uh, the no code and the low code. And I've come across some limitations. I think when it comes to like something like bubble security, you know, you, you don't have as much control over the security or as much of the data processing power. Mm -hmm. um, but that's okay. You can, you can leverage these tools to get something out there quickly, as you said, and, and get feedback. Um, are there any other kind of parts of engineers or types of engineers uh, that you think, uh, or types of projects that are best for, or one that are going to be obsolete and which skills maybe will still be needed, right? Vers mm -hmm. Versus what will be a commodity? Yeah, no, great question. So I think right? Writing perfect code is going to become less and less valuable, essentially. Um, once the speed of basically building something effective becomes that much more important, then ultimately it's going to kind of devalue it just ever so slightly, right? And there's going to be still mission critical systems that are going to be reviewed and reviewed with a fine tooth comb, but there'll be diminishing returns there because ultimately, you know, machines are going to be able to do a lot of this work for us. So that doesn't mean that the engineering is important. It means that it shifts and it shifts to a higher level, which is how it's ultimately going to evolve. So I think your skills as an engineer, if you're to kind of keep pace with the direction in which it's going, become less of a figure out how to make all the custom pieces and then put it together to figure out how to put it together with the pieces kind of prefabricated for you. It's mm -hmm. almost like building a custom home versus like building a modular home or right. using Legos or something like that. I was thinking like about that, that and, and yeah. you know, that metaphor. Um, and, and especially when we're talking about how fast engineers can work or how slow, mm -hmm. like if you are, if you have a building built and you have a busted pipe, um, you could pro probably get it fixed faster in a building than you can get it fixed if it was the equivalent by, by software engineers. <laughs> well said. <laughs> so, you know, there's the... The Pareto principle that says what, like 20% of the work, 80% of the value or something like that. Am I getting it wrong or right? I think it's something uh, like that. Yeah, so 80-20 rules. So yeah. 80% uh, of your rules comes from 20% of kind of your work. So now I heard someone phrase it 
differently, so not quite the Pareto principle, but that basically like most organizations, 80% of their engineering requirements can be covered with low code, no code modular items and 20% will be kind of custom, that mission critical Mm -hmm. uh, um, stuff that that you spoke to. Does that does that number resonate? Or are we just grabbing that because that's like a number that's already out there? Yeah, I think it doesn't always wind up being exact like exactly that number. It might be like sixty five, thirty five, or you know what I mean. Where like um, there's also the Pareto principle applied to itself, and anyway, eighty twenty of eighty twenty, but within that range for sure, it's for the most like part. Yeah, it's just inception with <laughs> the same principle. <laughs> But we uh, tend to follow that for sure. And there's like leap forwards and progress along the way. So I think that's likely to be the case here moving forward as it goes through a couple different versions of evolution. How do we balance this idea that engineering and, and I want to be specific to software engineering um, and this might be me nitpicking at words, but, you know, I'd rather say software developers because not all software developers are mm -hmm. engineers. I don't know about you. Do you have an engineering degree or were you given that title for work? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, and I know there's been a lot of talk about this as well, too. So I do have an engineering degree. Uh, it's not technically a software engineering degree, although it includes elements of that. It's a computer engineering degree. Yeah, but you're an like, engineer. Yeah, and by education. There's, correct. There's, yeah, by education. So I'm an engineer by education. Mm -hmm. uh, my dad is it also an engineer by both education and professional license. Yep. And um, this has come up and I don't know if we've talked about it, but I'll, I'll repeat it for everyone listening that um, when I trademarked the lady engineer, I filed paperwork to do business as lady engineer in Pennsylvania. And I was rejected because I don't have a professional engineering license and I don't keep up that license with continuing education credits. At first, my dad was like, no, my baby, she's an engineer. I'm so proud of her. How could they do this? And then he realized that, no, there's a there's a standard to call yourself an engineer, to do business as an engineer. And in the, let's say, physical, tangible engineering world of, of, of mecha mechanical engineering, civil engineering, um, it's really meaningful. You would not want an uncertified civil engineer to right. fix the Betsy Ross bridge. Like you want someone to have their professional engineering license because we can, as people literally perceive life or death for that bridge. Mm -hmm. In the software world, we throw around engineer. It doesn't mean anything anymore. It means like the layman's term to create and build rather mm -hmm. than and, and design, but not doesn't mean any academic credentials or professional licenses. But I would argue, and, and this is the one thing that you said about where it comes up in different industries where we really need an engineer, I would argue that there's certain things that we want actual engineers with engineering education and credentials in the software world to be owning like in finance or mm -hmm. our national security infrastructure uh, things like that uh, is where i think we don't want that to become a commodity yeah. 
because we can't perceive the physical of life and death, but there are some extremely mental life and death that turns into like self-harm and other things when people's identities are stolen and they lose money and blah, uh-huh. blah, blah, blah. I don't want to go down that road. But I do want to mention that there's parts of software development that we want to maintain a high standard of while parts of it can be commoditized. I just said a lot and went on a little rant. Would you like to respond to any of that? (laughs) (laughs) No, I I mean, I agree for the most part, right? There's, it depends on the application, right? In terms of like the designation of developer and engineer, and we can get into all that. And, um, you know, we have uh, engineering degrees um, by education and things like that. And I think that there's still value for that for sure. As in it, it shaped kind of the way that I problem solve essentially. And uh, that is, it's important to understand and be able to respect certain boundaries because like the laws of physics, for example, and calculus and things like that, uh, those are, those aren't necessarily rules you should be trying to bend or break, but Mm -hmm. the common, uh, common expectation in the world of software is that we're, you know, question everything type of thing. Well, not laws that have been proven (laughs) for the most part uh, that exist in the, you know, as we understand the physical world. So we're not going to probably be playing around with those. So I think it's important to be able to understand and have respect for those and understand, you know, if you do or don't have the required probably credentials or proper training in order to be able to work on something like that. So for sure, um, absolutely. I think those designations will remain uh, and continue to be valuable, um, even though you know we're going to see probably a lot of evolution in other areas as well. Yeah. Cool. I want to get to one other topic, and and that's on a lot of people's minds right now, but it's two topics we talked about earlier kind of combined, which is the age of the tech CEO hero and whether that will come to an end kind of crossed with VC-led startup growth. So, you know, Elon Musk's takeover of Twitter and all of his snafus have been in, you know, pop culture and the average person's uh, news feed. Mark Zuckerberg's kind of failed attempt to commercialize the metaverse. Elizabeth Holmes with Theranos and even going back to the bad behavior of Uber's former CEO, Travis uh, Kalanick. These people are like all products of Silicon Valley and the ethos of VC-driven startup growth. So what's the connection uh, between, you know, bad behavior and bad business, to be honest? Great question. I mean, something that I've been beating up a lot lately and I've produced some content about this is the whole startup unicorn status, right? Which is kind of loosely defined as startups that ultimately become valued at more than a billion dollars. And equally as long a list is the amount of startups that have reached that and then ultimately failed, so to speak as well, too. And I, you know, I think this push for trying to become one of these startup unicorns is flawed in almost every sense of the imagination in that it just promotes and encourages bad business practice. Many of them, you know, I was studying Uber's path, for example, and I don't know if you're familiar, but Back when they IPO'd years ago, they had said right around that time that they don't know if they'll ever be profitable. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Which, the company like, still isn't what? profitable, though. Right. That's what's it fascinating. It still isn't profitable. Nope. Losing billions of dollars with a B every the, year. The VCs saddled the public market mm-hmm. with dealing with that problem so that they could cash out early. Right. 
And I had someone, I was listening to another podcast, they described it as a pyramid scheme. I was just talking about, I was talking about in terms of, I was uh, referring it to as a Ponzi scheme, but same idea oh, in yeah. that essentially it's just like you're raising from investors with deeper pockets to pay the investors that have shallower pockets. And that process just repeats indefinitely. <laughs> what I don't understand is like, what's the end goal in mind here? If it doesn't ever produce a profit, which I had always assumed was the goal of healthy business or a healthy business is capable of doing that, right? Producing a return, a return on investment. And what are we doing here? Like, it doesn't even seem, seems much more like, put it nicely, a hobby, put it probably the way it shares most with some form of scheme. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So do you think like, do you think another trend I read about is, you know, VCs stop hunting unicorns? Mm -hmm. Um argue that they probably should since unicorns don't exist <laughs> they're fake animals but <laughs> that's but, great it's a perfect analogy <laughs> but like is there anything that we see that um tells us that besides the slowing of the economy the slowing of deploying capital but is there is there anything we see it, even amongst founders um and the approach to startups at all to indicate that this is going to happen, that they're going to focus on workhorses that have business models and are making money? It's a great question. And I want to say, I hope, but I'm not optimistic. I think the startup unicorn as this like allure mythical, you know, reach this holy grail kind of thing is probably going to continue to be attractive while investors are looking for ridiculous level of returns, so to speak, regardless of how practical they may or may not be. And there's so many examples of it. And you see like the story of like WeWork and things like that, where it's just like valued at 10x over what, well, you know, an Adam, actual profitable Adam company Newman. doing the same thing. And yeah. he's just got funding again and he just recently. Got funding and it's like, again. That's what I mean, right? right? Isn't that mind boggling? Like, how it's does that mind, happen? It's mind boggling. Uh, I think, you know, um, when I moved out to Silicon Valley in 2005, we were emerging from the boom and bust, mm -hmm. um, would you say, at the turn of the century? <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, Y2K. Uh, but yeah. that was like largely driven by like this first to market, right? Right. You know, we don't need to talk to customers. Right. We just need to be the first one to do this thing online right mm -hmm. and and the same thing kind of happened as we said with the with uber right like vcs yeah. pumped this thing up dumped it on the public market i think i heard some story about was it like time warner bought and maybe aol or something like and it was yep. just like it, it it they realized that it was all vaporware like they were right, gonna, exactly like there wasn't money actually in this business um it actually happened uh, recently. Uh, JP Morgan acquired an ed tech startup for 175 million, and the founder was caught fabricating almost four million user accounts. And um, that's a whole nother podcast. Crazy, yeah, it is. <laughs> I've done due diligence with 25 companies, at least. JP Morgan, give me a call. Like, give me 10% of the Let's deal next text. time. I'll catch that right. bogus for you. But um, yeah, I, I think um, it was like, you know, pump up the market, you know, 
the yep. first to market, right? Yep. And there's still kind of a first to market mentality that still lives on, mm-hmm. right? That's why so many um, fail because of no market yep. need because they build without talking to customers. Um, but do you think Silicon Valley has learned its lesson from first to market? I think there have been some, but we're still kind of moving too fast to build quality products uh, with higher standards that protect people's personal information and (laughs) make money. (laughs) Well said. I sure hope so. I mean, every time there's probably some type of joke in there about someone getting wings or something every time a VC has to lose their lunch on some kind of deal. But I think they just try to make it up by kind of repeating the same. The other thing that I think is interesting is uh, it depends on also where a lot of the capital is sourcing from. Uh, one of the phrases that I've heard from time to time that I think is valuable is it's time for a new generation to learn an old lesson. So sometimes this stuff gets passed down, but ultimately the lessons that came with it don't follow as such repeat a lot of the same mistakes. I think we're probably likely to continue to see that. But one thing that I think will be a catalyst here is that money's no longer as cheap as it was. Now that if interest rates have gone back up, it becomes a lot harder to spend because it's that much more expensive. As such, now more due diligence needs to go into making sure that's going into a sound investment. So mm-hmm. if the fundamentals aren't there, if you don't have solid economics for your SaaS or your company, then it should be questionable in terms of whether or not you're ultimately going to get an investment. And that's why I'm always advocating these companies focus on a path to profitability right out of the gate, right? You don't need to have it immediately. It can be something that requires investment, but not indefinitely, right? Not growth for growth's sake, not this negative earnings nonsense that is ultimately never intending to become profitable because to me, that's just not solid business fundamentals. The, I mean, to be fair, I thought like Uber was going to maybe take over autonomous vehicles or something. I think that was part of the dream. They thought that was their Right. Path to profitability. And you think it would die if that hadn't materialized, <laughs> but it's still very much going. Well, it's had such an outsized impact on the way all also of true. us kind of like live and travel and yep. order food and stuff like that. But that also doesn't make, a, you know, a business. Um, I do see from my point of view, for the past few years, investors wanting that path to profitability and not interested in investing in an ad supported model. And by that, I mean, we think about Facebook being um, free to get to as many, as many users as possible. And then they introduce ads. Investors aren't willing to take a chance that if you get a million users, someone will pay you yep. and that's good. So they're looking for actual Agreed. business models. Now the business model du jour is a SaaS software as a service subscription, uh, payments and such. Uh, mm-hmm. You had some take on SaaS economics and, and the future of that for startups. And I'm super interested in what you're thinking about on that. Yeah. And I produced some content on this topic recently and it's really, I think, in this area of focusing on this path to profitability and a return on investment, like getting back to the basics, right? Which at its most fundamental level is bringing in more money than you spend, essentially. That you believe, I mean, I know you would because you've been there, but how many companies do not understand that fundamental concept and are not 
leveraging it in order to build something that they're trying to build, right? There's all this arbitrage going on and just assuming that there's always going to be a bigger investor. And I think that's a dangerous path to head down, not just mm -hmm. because of the risk and the low odds of success, but the because, dependency. yeah, exactly. Like right. it's instead, um, wouldn't you rather control your own destiny, figure out that path to profitability, maintain more of the ownership control and reward as you continue to be successful and Right. Um, and, and you could just continually invest and grow based on your own earnings and also just get favorable terms when it's time to, you know, borrow some capital or raise another round. And uh, that I would rather see the control, you know, rest with the founders, the original team, that type of thing, then be able to kind of control their mission and destiny and uh, bring that value to the world. So I think this is a slightly changing landscape that's going on right now. I mean, I think solid business fundamentals and economics were always popular, but there was a lot of nonsense going on at the same time too. So I think some of these changes are going to lead to ultimately stronger business models and ultimately, mm -hmm. I think, better products. Do you think the stronger business models of the future are still kind of SaaS subscription-based? Mm -hmm. Good question. I think it's still going to be a popular topic and popular model. I think there's some uh, there's some industries that are trying to like, really stretch it way beyond it really should go. And one that comes into question is content I've created recently around the automotive industry, where companies like BMW are trying to charge people subscription fees for accessing the heated seats that their car already has that previously they sold and you had unlimited yeah. access to. Yeah, and it's I like, think that's a, that's a stretch. Okay, that's not okay. Yeah, that's a, <laughs> right? that's so, a stretch. But um, in terms of the subscription model, I mean, if you're using it appropriately, so I think it's still one of the best uh, where it fits in a lot of instances. It's not perfect for every situation, but I think it's still going to continue to be pretty popular. Um, yeah, I I appreciate, I do appreciate, like, it seems like everything is monthly when it comes to my mm -hmm. SaaS, like the tools I use for my business. I do appreciate being able to choose some of them I pay monthly, some of them I can commit Same. to the full year. I'm working with a startup right now. And one of the things we learned was that the price of their platform was more palatable as just offered as a one year one year um fee uh, that because the end user didn't perceive like they weren't going to be using this app every month mm. consistently that's cool every month and or multiple times a month that getting mm -hmm. charged every month would be tiring so billing yeah. on a quarter or a six month or a year mm -hmm. actually made more sense i like that uh, I don't, have you come across uh anything like that yeah that's a really good point uh the kind of psychological element of seeing that charge come in all the time for a product you may or may not be using and you know that might be part of the routine or maybe it's not i think subscription fatigue is definitely a real thing so companies need to pay close attention to that and make sure that how they're charging is appropriate. Like because so many things are subscription today almost means a lot of them default to it and just like force anything into that model. And it isn't always appropriate or how you do it perhaps isn't always appropriate. I think Salesforce is starting to get beat up in this area quite a bit now because they've had these like ironclad contracts, which are almost impossible to get out of and they haven't updated the product. So the yeah. experience hasn't been great. People are like, HubSpot is way better or insert whatever CRM here is actually innovating. I don't want to use this product anymore. And you've got me in this ironclad expensive contract. Like 
now I'm leaving with a bad taste in my mouth. So like, right. even if you do fix this problem, I'm going to never come back. So you need right, to be careful you that you're in. using, exactly. Like you need to be careful that you're, like you said, you gave the perfect example, right? Um, figure out which variables uh, should be set in which way to make for the best experience for your customer. Yeah, you can think about, you know, what also how often you want them to be using the software mm -hmm. and at what pace. And that's important for just judging your metrics as well. So um, I was just thinking, and it's probably a total throwaway, but uh, a lot of, you know, the BMW seats being a subscription, um, you know, there's these like, smoothies and and supplements that everything everyone wants you to sign up for like a, a subscription for it yep. you're like i just want to try you <laughs> yeah, right. right exactly like, it seems it's like not everything. be an immediate marriage like why don't we uh can i give it a shot first or yeah. do i have to commit right. for the rest of my life <laughs> right 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 um so then just kind of the final is like if if hopefully we, you know, the age of the tech CEO hero comes to the end, like who do you think people will start to look to or who can they start to look to as far as, um, you know, innovation and the future and the mm -hmm. possibility? Yeah, great question. I think what I'd love to see is more diverse teams take the spotlight and those teams get the credit. Mm -hmm. Plus another exciting thing that I'm looking forward to there being more of, and I've tried to do more and more of this work myself as well too, is where products and companies are being built, not just to make money, but to make a difference. I think I'm really excited for that. The world of impact investing is growing really rapidly. Mm -hmm. And I think this is a really good thing. So we put our dollars to good use because there's more than just making money and creating value that way, right? There's a lot of problems the world needs solved and I'd love to see more businesses focus in this area. And I think we are with the younger generation, which is really exciting. Yeah. So love to see more diversity. Uh, you know, there's not much in tech. Uh, a lot of the people at the top uh, are from one very specific demographic. Look like you. <laughs> exactly. Like they just look <laughs> like me, right? It's like, okay, I think we've got enough white guys in those roles. Like maybe we can mix it up a little bit. Like, sure. So sure. love to I've see that. I've been trying to mix it up for 20 years. Uh, we need so much more of it. I, you know, and it's so obvious to me. It's like every time I'm on a team that's more diverse, better ideas, better innovation, different life experiences, it works better for the world because the whole world isn't white guys, right? Yeah. <laughs> so this stuff is so obvious to me, but it is still so painfully slow to develop. So I'm excited for uh, more diversity to take the spotlight. Yeah, for, for sure. So uh, let's make it all make sense okay uh many of the negative headlines we see in the news we can be traced back to some core beliefs in the silicon valley led startup and investment community um software engineering still is a little bit of a, a wild west but we're gonna see some gains to hopefully speed up our ability to improve and serve our customers uh, so we're all both excited about that and some uh hopefully we can see a bunch more diversity uh leading uh tech industry in general so they can be our heroes um versus the former so thank you for listening to make sense with me your host lindsay tabus and guest sean boyce we hope you enjoyed our take on the future of engineering and vc driven startup growth
If you want to continue to be the smartest person in the room, hit that subscribe or follow button for next week's episode. Uh, I'm in the early days with this, and every subscriber on YouTube specifically makes a huge difference. As always, check out the links and resources in the show notes. We've got some things from Sean to share. And that's all for this episode. Catch up with you next time.